Good morning. Thank you, Jesus. Well, the message I'm going to share with you this morning is uh, very, very different for me. As an evangelist, you know, I always like the call of repentance and so on, but this is a different message. And uh, it's going to take a little bit of time for me to lay some preliminary thought before we get in the Word. We will be in the Word together shortly, but I want to lay out some thoughts. And some of this thought is going to be even where this message had its origins, where God started just dealing with me, and uh, out of it came this message. And uh, let's look to the Lord in prayer. Father, we ask for your blessing on this word. We ask that you give us ears to hear. Lord, help us to understand how it applies to each of our lives. And Lord, we ask for the grace to live this out. In the precious and wonderful name of Jesus. Amen. Well, the title of the message is Breaking the Power of Grief. Suffering and grief are realities in our sinful world, whether we like it or not. And uh, it's not if you're going to suffer and have grief. It's when. Okay? So that's how absolute it is. It is going to happen. There's no way as human beings we're going to get away from it. It's going to come into our life. But what matters is where we are at in our relationship with Christ. And I really want to uh, lay that out as we start getting into this. But ever since the fall of Adam and Eve, and I believe in a real Adam and a real Eve and a real fall, because otherwise we have no uh, rhyme and reason for sin being in this world and why evil exists. So I believe in a real Adam and Eve, and their terrible rebellion brought a change in the world. And I'll tell you what, I, I have thought so much about the aspect of, of the garden and what it had to be like, and uh, I can't I can't get my mind around it, because it's so utterly, completely foreign to what this world is that I can't understand a place of perfection like that, nor can I understand how, how Adam and Eve opened up to uh, the temptation, but we had a serpent that was there that uh, was very cunning. Their terrible rebellion brought a change, and it brought suffering and grief into this world. And even there, I, I have thought about this, just what would it have to have been like for Adam and Eve, because... Before the fall, they had perfect emotions. After the fall, their emotions were twisted as a result of sin, but there were some emotions they had never yet experienced. Imagine when Cain slew Abel. The first time grief, at least so it would seem from Scripture, the first time grief came into their, into their uh, life. Can you imagine how, how terrifying it would be never seeing it again or never experiencing it before and then having to begin to respond to it and how to respond? We weren't created for suffering. But that's the reality we're in now because we live in a sinful world and rebelling against God. And we ourselves, because of our own sin nature, are, are part of that. Yes, those who are true believers have been redeemed, have been bought by the blood of Christ, and, and that's it, but we still have to deal with our own sinful nature that causes suffering at times to other people and, and they to us. And, and then you have the, the, the greater aspect, the deeper aspect of suffering that is grief. That can touch all kinds of things, from the aspect of, of death to other kinds of loss and so on. Yet only in the biblical faith 
is there a reason why evil is in this world and why suffering is in this world? And only in the biblical faith is there value given to it. Nothing else, no other philosophy, no other religion in the world can answer the reality of evil and why it's here and why people suffer and why they have grief. No other religion, no other philosophy, they are all bankrupt. They have no answer. When people suffer loss and they go through, through grief, they can go to the world and try and get grief counseling and, and it may pacify things, but it does not have the ability to heal the pains that are inside people because that is something that only God can truly do. And so the wonder of this God is that He uses our suffering for our good. None of us came to Jesus because we were good and noble people. We came to Jesus because one way or the other we came to an understanding of our sinfulness, of our neediness. Usually that comes through a very painful process and it can vary to the extent of it from person to person. But God used the pain and suffering and the aspect of realizing that there's something really, really, really broken in our world to bring us to the point to see that we needed a Savior. But then it didn't just stop there. God still uses the suffering and grief in our life to mold us and shape us that are His followers so that we might become more like Jesus. And that will happen if we allow Him to produce or bring out of our suffering what, it, what He desires. And then He also has also uses suffering to deliver us from sin and damnation. I wish we just heard. I wish that He could just speak to us and say, stop that. And we say, yes. <laughs> but usually we've got to go through a lot of suffering and a lot of difficulties to come to the place to where we are finally convinced that He's right and we're wrong. You see, this suffering and grief is a byproduct of reaping what we sow. In all kinds of ways. I mean, every bit of suffering in this world is the result, one way or the other, of, of man's fall. Even natural disasters, because they weren't there, as I could understand, as I understand the, the whole aspect of paradise and what there was. It wasn't there in that time. It came about because of the fall of man. And I'm not going to tell you i got rhyme or reason to all that, or I can, uh, can really wrap my brain around it. But suffering came out of reaping what we sow. Like I said, the world doesn't have an answer to it. Doesn't have an answer. Can't deal with the reality of grief and suffering. Can't can't deal with it. Because they don't know really what it is and where it comes from. They don't really understand. Now, I just want to take a couple of moments to look at a, a, at a, a, the definition of suffering and grief. Suffering is to undergo or feel pain or distress. And so we all know what suffering is. Whether it's physical, whether it's mental, whether it's emotional, we all know what suffering is. We've all experienced it. Whether we can always put the aspect of, of a definition to it, it's not always that easy. But it's to experience or to endure and to put up with. So you might have the situation where you're putting up with something in your life, uh, such as a sickness or a disease and the challenges that are with that. It's to sustain loss. And this sustaining loss can, can go to the deeper expression of what grief is. Grief is an expression of suffering, but it's a response to loss, to the loss of someone or some living thing that has died and to which there was a bond of affection was formed. So, the greater the bond, the greater the aspect of the suffering or the grief that comes out of it. And that can be an individual or it can be, guess what, a pet. 
I mean, sometimes people get so attached to their pets when their pets die, uh, they go on a tailspin. Um, but yet, those fuzzy little things can be so uh, uh, endearing to the heart, you know. So uh, that can be an aspect of, of grief that comes to us. It's deep mental anguish. Grief is this is suffering with deep mental anguish. It's something that has gripped us, and that's why we relate so much to it with the aspect of death. But it can be other losses that are very, very something that's very important, something that's serious that causes deep, profound grief. Grief is great sadness over the loss that we have. Like I said, it can be of the death of someone. It can be the loss of a job. It can be. Uh, the aspect of a child that goes astray in, into the world. I mean, there's a, a various ways that that grief can become that, that deep, that emotionally uh, uh, shaking to us. I want to share a couple of stories with you. And these stories is really where the whole thought began with this message. The first one I've known for a long, long time. And what it is is, is my wife has an aunt, or had an aunt, I believe she's died. But she had an aunt, and uh, her husband died. She's not a believer, and her husband died, and she just went into this terrible time of grief. And for 20 years, she never cleaned anything out of her house of her husband's. She moves to New Mexico, to Albuquerque. And guess what? She moves everything of her husband's, of her dead husband's, moves everything and puts it all back up in her house, in her new house in, in, in uh, New Mexico there. You know, the clothes and the closet, everything. You know, just this agonizing thing that just continued in her life. But she wasn't a Christian. She didn't, she didn't have any idea how to deal with grief or how to cope with it. And the world has no answer to it. Another one is of this woman. And she lost her husband. And the story is that before her husband got sick and died, their marriage, and I believe this was like the third marriage for this woman, the marriage was just a nightmare. It was terrible. She was going to get a divorce, but then she got sick and backed off of it, and, and then he died. And, and so what happened is, is, here you have this woman that had a terrible marriage, wanted to get a divorce from this man, yet when he died, she went into this grief that was just, just horrendous. And to this day... Uh, she has things broken in her house, such as her toilet. Her toilet doesn't work anymore. She has to bring buckets of water to, to be able to use it. And she won't let anybody come in her house because her house is filled with her husband's stuff that's all over the place, and all there is is paths through the house to get the various things. So she's utterly ashamed of what her house is, but she will do nothing about it because she will not allow God to bring healing to the grief that's gone on in her life. And so this goes on and on and on because she will not let Jesus in will not let him change this in her, heal her of this. Now, she claims to be a Christian, and it's not my place to say she is or isn't. She has to deal with that with Jesus. But yet there's something terribly wrong with her idea of grief. Then you have woman number two. You know, the loss this woman had of her son, I mean, the grief was unbelievable. But the story is, is, is interesting because the son that died was in his mid to late 30s, if I remember correctly, and uh, he had lived a crazy life, strung out on drugs a year earlier. He had a heart attack, uh, and uh, he recovered from it. But, you know, the excessive drug abuse and how he had just abused his body uh, brought him to a place of, of uh, just bad health. And so he wasn't serving Jesus. But then a couple months earlier... Uh, 
he came home. So here's this adult child that comes home to stay with mom and dad. And guess what? He gets radically saved. I mean, the, the, the whole story of this guy and his salvation was radical. He was radically saved. So there wasn't no maybe about it because the evidence, the mark of salvation was upon his life. So this mother is going through this absolutely agonizing grief. Though she had this wonderful reality that two months prior, her son got radically saved and he was in heaven. And yet her grief is just, just overwhelming. It's just unbelievable. It's just totally gripped her and it's immobilizing her. And, and both of these women that I'm referring to, they, they refer to themselves as Christians. And like I said earlier, I don't know if they are or not. That's between them and Jesus. Yet their grief is just, just extreme. And when I look at the second woman, she's going to have years and years of this because she's not willing to let go of the grief and the pain or to allow Jesus to touch and heal her. I went up to her and I felt I had something to tell her of the Lord. And I went to her and I said, I really believe that the remedy, the healing that you need for your grief is going to be found in worship, found in prayer. I began to teach her just a little bit about what it was to fix her eyes on Jesus, begin to worship and, 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 and let a song be in her heart all the time. Keep it going in her house constantly. Get your mind off of you. And she didn't listen and kept on going and doing what she's doing, and she's still in the same place. There's something wrong with their excessive grief. There's something wrong with it. What is it? Well, I'm going to make it very narrow, very simple here. The problem is their walk with Christ. Now, Jesse's aunt wasn't a Christian, so she had no ability. She had nothing, no help outside of herself to help her with the grief. But these other two women were supposedly Christians, and they should be suffering very differently. Their grief should be very different. They should have this God of refuge that they're going to, and they're finding a remedy to the pain. And God doesn't have a problem with our grief. It's how we grieve, and there's things that, that become something inside of us that's wrong. And as I looked at these stories, I began to realize that we deal with grief years before it ever comes. Because what we are is how we're going to deal with our grief. And we don't know when grief or sorrow is going to come upon us. We don't know when it's going to happen because it could happen at any moment, any disaster, anything could happen because we live in such an unstable, unsecure world. And so once a, a, a suffering or grief comes into our life, we don't have time to say, let me get right with Jesus or let me get this out of my life. Let me deal with this idol. Because all of a sudden when it happens, we're in it and now we're going to deal with it according to what we are. And so if we're going to deal with suffering and we're going to deal with grief, we have to deal with it before it ever happens. We have to deal with it on who we become in Christ and the character that we have. Because character, this is all about character. It gets right down to the reality of character. Now, I want to give another story. But I don't think there's a problem with naming them. Pastor Sal and Sister Laura Perez, they pastor in Tucson, Arizona, Wonderful couple. I love them. I minister every year at their church. It's a Victory Outreach, and Victory Outreach is a is a, uh, a, a denomination, very radical, soul-winning denomination uh, that's to predominantly the Hispanic and inner-city uh, communities in our country and even in other parts of the world. Now, most of the pastors in VO, that's what they refer to it as, VO, Victory Outreach, most of the pastors in VO 
have were gangbangers. I mean, they live crazy lives. I mean, these are these are drug addicts, drug dealers. I mean, all the craziness of their life. So they did some serious abuse of their bodies. When COVID hit, Pastor Sal and Sister Laura lost at least forty people. Over twenty of them were pastors because the pastors' bodies had been so affected from their drug addiction that when COVID hit, it hit them hard, and they didn't recover. Pastor Sal himself got COVID and was in the hospital for nine days. They wanted to put him on a ventilator. You go on a ventilator, most of the time you're going to be dead as a result. He refused to do it. He came out. I happened to be there during that time ministering, and I ministered longer at his church because he was still recovering and couldn't, uh, wasn't able to preach at that time. During that time, Sister Laura's father died, but not of COVID. He was a, a precious man. I mean, precious, loved Jesus. Wonderful man. Last Sunday, Sister Laura's mother died. A lot of grief. You understand? There's a lot of loss there. A lot of loss. Last year, we came up to the church. And just about that time, Pastor Sal's brother died. And, you know, till that time, Pastor Sal and Sister Laura were doing good. They were handling the grief. And, you know, tears were shed, of course, the feelings of loss and, and, and that there. But their faith strong, their, their testimony good and wonderful, and the reality of a God that is near. But when his brother died, which he was, who he was close to, it hit him hard. He didn't go into a tailspin. He didn't do anything crazy. But the emotions started coming to the top. And many times talking to him, either tears would be there or on the verge of just wanting to weep. So we were there when the funeral for his brother came, happened, and we went there. And I'll tell you, it was one of the best messages I ever heard preached at a funeral because it was more than just a funeral message. It was a man speaking out of the experience of his brother and how his brother had come to Christ. It was just wonderful how he did that. And yet he had, he had another man that was, was ready or myself to be ready to take uh, the place that he got up there and preached and couldn't handle it. That loss hit him hard. That grief hit him hard. But yet, you saw the reality of a man in relationship with God, and you saw how he overcame in the midst of it. Jesus didn't have a problem with, his, with the tears. Didn't have a problem with the grief. He has the problem, as we'll see in a little bit, when we go from faith to unbelief. So how we deal with Sufferings and grief reveals our character. It reveals the condition of our love for Jesus and our faith in Him. It really does. It's, it's like grief comes and all of a sudden you see what kind of person it is. And like I said earlier, nobody knows how they're really going to deal with it until it comes. But I'll tell you what, in my own life, whether my wife dies or, or my daughter or whatever, says, I want a life that gives testimony to the reality of Christ rather than the despair that this world has to give. And I have to prepare for that kind of stuff now. Turn with me to John chapter 11. And we're going to look at the story of Lazarus. It's not the purpose of this message to get to his resurrection, so we won't get that far. But beginning in verse 20, 
When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him. But Mary stayed at home. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now, God will give you whatever you ask. Now, as we'll see in a little bit, she's saying something that her heart isn't yet behind. She doesn't really believe this. Okay, but she's saying it, and she's trying, but Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live, even though he dies. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she said. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who has come into the world. Now, what I'm going to do is I'm going to just touch on it. I don't have time to get deeply in it unless you want to be here for like four hours. Um, I'm going to get into ten points about, about overcoming sorrow and grief. The very first one is seen in this. And you want, you want to know what the key to overcoming grief and suffering is right here? Literally knowing Jesus. Knowing Him. Not knowing about Him. Not knowing Him in the past. Not knowing just some information. But knowing Him. A real relationship. Because she brings out something here that I think is very good. She says, I believe that you are the Christ, the Messiah. I believe you're the one that was promised in the Old Testament. Now, I know she didn't understand what that really meant because she had mingled the, the prophecies in the Old Testament out of first and second coming and she didn't have the, the resurrection of Christ to differentiate between the two. But yet she believed He was Messiah. But there's more. I believe you're the Son of God. Now, whether she had come to the point to really understand His divinity, I don't know. But yet she's going farther beyond just the aspect of, I believe you're Messiah, to saying, I believe you are God's Son. And then she says something else, who has come into the world. What an interesting statement to say. You know what that means? She knew about the virgin birth. She knew about the virgin birth. She says, you have come into the world. That speaks of His pre-existence. So she had some great knowledge of who Jesus was. Not just superficial. Yes, it was doctrinal. You see, doctrinal truth has to go beyond the head and really get to the heart because with the heart, man believes in the salvation. It's not with the head man believes. It's with the heart man believes. And so the first key to overcoming grief and suffering is really literally knowing Jesus. And because somebody goes to church doesn't mean they really know Jesus. They may learn about Him. They may learn stuff about Him. They may have information. They may even have a Bible degree, but doesn't mean, mean that they really know Him. So if we're going to have any hope of understanding that Jesus is the resurrection and the life, that's going to come only by entering into true relationship with Him. Now, there's another aspect of this, of knowing Jesus. And this is the hard part, okay? Now, this is, this is serious. This is hard hard stuff here, and I'm not going to tell you I got the answer other than the, the little keys I'm going to be giving you here. When a loved one dies in Christ, we can have the hope, yes, Jesus is the resurrection and the life. They are with Jesus now. They are with Him forever. And they are better off than what we are. And I guarantee you, once they're there, if they had a chance to come back, they wouldn't. Okay? I mean, they are 
in a, in a setting we can't even comprehend the wonder and the beauty and the joy of it. We should rejoice in it, though we can grieve over the aspect of not being with them. But what about those who die without Christ? My father died without Jesus. Jesse's father died without Jesus. There's the reality of knowing that God is good and He does all things right. And when He judges, He judges correctly every single time without fail. We have to know Him. We have to know Him. Know Him even as just judge. That when He does damn a soul to hell, it is the right thing to do because they refuse to walk with Him. And that those that have repented and truly died in Christ they can have the joy of eternal life with Him. Not because they deserve it, but because they have been cleansed by the blood of Christ. They've been purified, and they have been given the righteousness of God. Now as the story continues in verse 32, when Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw Him, she fell at His feet and said, Lord, if You had been here, my brother would not have died. Martha said that. Mary said that. You understand? They both said that. There was the faith to believe that Jesus could have healed Lazarus while he was alive, but there was this, this barrier, this line, this, this, this place that can't be crossed called death. And she had a hard time even imagining that Jesus could do anything beyond that. So she had a knowledge of Jesus, and I believe from the life of Mary and what you see of Mary that she was a woman that had a relationship with Jesus. She really did love Him. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him? he asked. Come and see, they replied. Jesus wept. Smallest, shortest verse in the Bible, Jesus wept. Which actually that word wept is two words. It's not one word in the Greek. And it means to shed tears. See, Jesus was deeply moved and troubled because He saw the grief of people and He was moved by it. And He wept. Those tears were genuine tears. Those were tears of feeling the pain of people, feeling their pain, feeling what they're going through. And so He shed tears. The other word that's used prior to that about the weeping is a different word. And it's this wailing, this agonizing wailing that goes on in grief, this loud wailing. And at the core of this hall is this, is this, this hopelessness. Jesus didn't have any hopelessness. He knows what's on the other side. He knew it was on the other side of death. There was no concern about that too, for Him. He wasn't worried about it. He was weeping over the sorrow that others were experiencing. And here's the second key that we've got to understand that Jesus loves us and really cares. He really does care because you know what happens when grief and suffering can come into a life? We get angry just like there was anger expressed from Mary and Martha. If you were here, why'd you fail me? You didn't show up when I wanted you to show up and now he's dead. When we understand that He cares, we understand that no matter what the end, end result is, that He has been somehow in the midst of it, somehow trying to work in our life, and even in the one that died. And we can understand that there's a God that is active in His creation, active in the life of His people. 
that they can literally know that there's this God that is intimate in the midst of pain. And if we will let it happen, it might be in the midst of our pain and sorrow that we experience some of the deepest, most profound times of intimacy with our God as He draws near to us. But it's when we do it His way, not our way. Jesus didn't rebuke Martha and Mary for their grief. didn't rebuke them. He felt for them. He cared. He really, literally cared. In Hebrews chapter 2, verse 18, Paul said, because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Now, Jesus, who is God incarnate, is omniscient, which means he knows everything. Okay? He knows everything that there is to know. There's no end to the knowledge that he has. And he's omnipresent, which means he's everywhere at once. So, it's not just that he knows what people do and what people are on the inside. He knows their thoughts. He knows them. He is there with every act that every person does, whether it's righteous or whether it's evil. He knows. But there's something about Him becoming human, about God becoming human, that is so astounding because it's not just now that He knows by being everywhere present and all-knowing. He knows by experiencing it Himself. He experienced pain and suffering and grief. He experienced those things and He's able to understand deeper than we can imagine because He knows. And you want to look at some of the agonizing grief that Jesus had. Just go to the Garden of Gethsemane and look at Him there when He sweats drops of blood and the agony of that time. Then it goes on in verse 38. Jesus once more deeply moved came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. Ah, here's the problem. But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time there is a bad odor, for he has been dead for four days. Then Jesus said, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. Why was Jesus deeply moved and grieved in this setting? What is different about this setting than the prior one where He was in agony with them over their suffering? He felt their pain. What is the difference? There's a difference here that is huge. And the huge is that Mary and Martha had gone from the place of faith to unbelief. And what grieved Him was unbelief was not the grieving process, but was the unbelief that would not allow them to come to the place to truly believe that He is the resurrection and life and that God has control of things even when it seems like life is out of control, that there's a God who has an answer in the midst of it all. And so the third key to overcoming grief and suffering is faith. Faith that will just believe when our mind is screaming something different, when the world is saying something different, that we choose to have faith and to know because we've tasted it, we've experienced the goodness of God, but now we choose to believe Him and we fight against those little devils of unbelief that want to come against us. Because if we succumb to unbelief, then we're going to get ourselves stuck 
right in the midst of suffering or grief. And the good that God wants to bring out of it, we will not let Him bring it out because we will not let Him do it. Now turn with me to 2 Timothy chapter 2. You can turn if you want. I'm going to go through some of these kind of fast. But 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15. Very well-known verse. Study to show yourself approved unto God, a workman that needs not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. And uh, other translations say, who correctly handles the word of truth. So the idea here is that we are to study to show ourselves approved of God. And what does that mean to be approved? To be to say, well, well, well done, good and faithful servant. It is not the theological aspect of this, Though theology is right and it has its place, we need to walk in right doctrine. But it's the application of the truth. We have studied the Word, we rightly apply the Word, and as a result, we begin to live according to what the Word is teaching. We become faithful to the Word of God. Now, grief is, is it's potent stuff. I mean, it's potent stuff. And like I said in the opening, we don't know how it's going to necessarily affect us until we go through it. I know when I was in grad school and, and uh, that, I, I know I studied the aspect of infant baptism and uh, its roots and everything else. And there's no Bible basis for it. It's, it's a thoroughly unbiblical doctrine. And uh, so... It, it came up through the Catholic Church and its uh, inception. And, uh, you know, it's just, like I said, it has no biblical basis at all. And the strange thing is those who have believed in, uh, in infant baptism and they write on it, you can have brilliant men that, that, that write brilliant stuff and they get to infant baptism and they get stupid. You know, I mean, just, it's like going, where'd your, where'd your intelligence go? I mean, you are, you are forcing the Word to say what you want it to say because that's what your custom is. That's what your tradition is. Well, Jesse and I, we listen to uh, various audiobooks, lots of them from uh, LibriVox.com. And so uh, I happened to find this one there on the wife of Martin Luther. And uh, all the study, while I was in grad school, the, the Great Reformation was one of the uh, areas of, of history I concentrated on. And I did a tremendous amount of writing and research on Martin Luther. Probably read virtually almost all of his works, but I didn't study anything about his wife. So nothing. So this book was kind of like totally different with it. And I'm not going to go into the whole thing. I mean, she was a, a nun that escaped and got delivered from her nunnery and all the other stuff and ended up walking with Jesus and having a, a, a real relationship and was a tremendous help and support to her husband through all that he went through. But in, in, the, in the book, there's this one place, and I think it actually happened twice, but one I really remember where Luther is, is, they just had another child, and Luther is saying, we need to get the child baptized so our heathen baby will become a Christian. Well, that's a lie from the pit of hell, you know? Now, I will say that Martin Luther took the Reformation as far as he could. If he would have taken it any further, there would have been no Reformation. So he went as far as he could. The man was radical. I mean, he really was. So I don't want to diminish the aspect of it. It was just, that was beyond. But yet at the same time, you have Zwingli, you have Calvin, all believed in infant baptism. Then you have Wesley that believed in infant baptism. And, you know, these men write on infant baptism. And like I said, this just, where'd your brain go? I mean, which, where'd the aspect of solo scriptura by scripture alone? What happened there? 
Why did they do this? Why did this thing come out? Because people wanted to deal with grief in a way that wasn't God's way. So they came up with a, with a myth, with a doctrine that was wrong. And if we're not going to deal with suffering and grief God's way, then we're going to try and find some other way to deal with our suffering, and it's going to be something that is not biblical in one way or the other. Hudson Taylor was this phenomenal missionary. Went to China. He lost his first wife over there. Married another woman. Phenomenal woman. Twelve years of marriage. And she is dying. The room is filled with converts and other missionaries. And Hudson Taylor is sitting on her bed. The last moments of this woman of God before she goes in the arms of Jesus. And all of a sudden, they see that breath, that final breath leave her. And you know what happens? Hudson Taylor fell to his knees, raised his hands, and just began to thank Jesus for the gift of this woman and the joy that he had of the 12 years. And you know what I imagine? That every person in that room looked at that man and the suffering he was going through and says, I can do that through Christ. If he would have done it the world's way, if we went to wailing and agony, what hopelessness, what despair, what chaos would have, would have swept through the people and the pastors. And they would say, does this man really believe what he's preached? Does he really believe that there's life after death? But his very life in the midst of suffering gave testimony to the reality of who this God is. And so the fourth key to overcoming grief and suffering is literally, truly knowing God's Word. Knowing it, not just intellectually, not just theologically, but knowing it on the inside, that the Word of God becomes so central to us that it defines the way that we think, the way that we act, and how we believe, and how we deal with, with times of prosperity, and how we deal with times of suffering, that it defines everything. And so David said in Psalms 119, verse 11, I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. He didn't say, I have hidden it in my head. I have hidden it in my heart. Yes, we need it in our head, but if it doesn't get to our heart, it does us no good, only makes us more guilty before God. We need it in our heart. It needs to become something that we believe and defines us, and not an addition to our life, but the definer of our life. Then in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 through 18. Brothers, we do not want you to be ignorant about those who fall asleep. A nice way of saying about those who die. Or to grieve like the rest of men who have no hope. So he's telling us right there, don't grieve like the world. Don't grieve like the world. They don't have a hope. You have a hope. So our grief should be very different. We believe that Jesus died and rose again so that we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in Him. Why do we have hope? Because of Christ. Because Christ died, rose again, and ascended to the right hand of the Father and promised to come back for us. According to God's own Word, we tell you that we who are still alive and who are left 
till the coming of the Lord will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord Himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of an archangel, with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with Him in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So will we be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage each other with these words. I believe Jesus coming back. But there's more to this than just the aspect of the belief of His second coming. There is the belief in the blessed hope, the rapture of the church. I believe in the rapture of the church. I believe it. I know there's a lot of teaching out there now that's going against it, but I believe it. I believe it has all kinds of examples of raptures within the Old Testament and within the New Testament. The the, the reality of the Word of God, I believe, is so strong with this, and I'm not going to preach on the on the rapture of the church. It's not the purpose of it. But yet there's something really powerful when the reality of heaven grabs a hold of us and defines us and we look to the reality of that heaven and say, I can't wait to get there. And when we understand the beauty and wonder of what heaven is, then we understand that those who die in Christ go to be with Him, which is far better than being in this world. And so the fifth key to overcoming grief and suffering is that blessed hope. The blessed hope of His second coming and the blessed hope of His rapturing the church. I'll tell you what. I have such hope because of that. The revival I was saved in from the hippie movement had a belief that was so powerful, so strong about the second coming of Christ, the evangelism out of that church was astronomical, not because it was forced or made to or whatever, but because we believe Jesus is coming back we have to tell everybody we can. It was a wonderful, a phenomenal dynamic in the life of the church. It was phenomenal. I rejoice that I was brought into that and that the second coming of Christ became so much a reality of my faith, a hope, a real hope. The aspect of a world that's getting worse and worse and worse by the day. That there's a time where Jesus is going to bring an end to it. And that I will be with Him forever and ever. And so what does He say? Therefore, encourage each other with these words. Encourage each other. Encourage each other when we suffer, when we grieve. Encourage each other because there's this promise that He's coming back for His church. That He's coming back for His bride. Pastor Jeff, I just want to say something very briefly about him. He's an excellent pastor. You need to cherish him. We're gone a lot, out preaching. But you need to understand he's a good pastor. And you need to, to, to be his armor bearers that help hold up him and Rose. I have preached at hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of churches. And I can tell you from my extensive experience that he's a rare, a rare man. But the last uh, sermon he preached before he went on vacation, he ended up touching on Luke chapter 14 and some of the radical, some of the most radical teaching that Jesus gave. And all of his teaching is radical if we really understand it. Okay, but this is just point blank in your face type of thing. You want to know what it is to be a Christian? Okay, these are it. This is it right here. This is the nitty-gritty. But the three things we're going to look at here are keys to overcoming grief and sorrow. And without them, we are destined to do this wrong. 
And so in Luke chapter 14, verse 26, Jesus said, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, his wife and children, his brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Three times, Jesus takes that absolute statement, cannot be my disciple, and uses it. An absolute statement. There are no exceptions. What do we try to do? We try to rewrite this and say, well, he's a poor disciple or a young disciple or a, a weak disciple. That's not what Jesus said. If you don't love him more than any person in your life, you cannot be his disciple. We can try to argue that away. We can try and go and say it doesn't mean what it says, but I believe Jesus knew what he was saying, said it the way he wanted it to be said, because this is the standard that he's giving his church. And so what's the key here? This is the sixth key to overcoming grief and sorrow. It's loving Jesus more than every single person in our life. When grief goes crazy, it's because we have loved incorrectly. We have loved idolatrously. When Jesus has His proper place, it doesn't mean that when, when a loved one dies or some suffering comes into our life, that it's not going to hurt. It just means that He has precedence above everything. He is still the prize, though the world may seem like it's going crazy for a time. The very next verse is integral to the first verse, because we will never love Jesus supremely unless we are going to live out, verse 27, and anyone who does not carry his cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. And so if we are going to love him supremely, that means we have to crucify every single thing that robs us of that first love, that attacks that first love in our life. We have to crucify every single thing that would take that away, whether it be a person, whether it be a possession, whether it be a thing, whatever it is. That we have to be willing to crucify and say, Jesus, you must be the supreme love of my life because I will only be able to stand what this world is facing, what's going to come upon the church, if I love you more than everyone in my life. And then he brought up something else. He said when he spoke about love, that we have to love more than anyone, he says, and yourself. You understand? The worst idol we have is not the idol of another person, but the idol of self. Because the idolatry of other people are rooted in the idolatry of self. I can tell you that the two women I referred to, woman number one and woman number two, both of them are self-absorbed, which is an expression of self-idolatry. They are consumed with their pain, their self-pity. I mean, they're consumed with it. They're absorbed. All they can look at at their loss, they can't look at the idea of the one that her son went to heaven. She can't look at that and just rejoice and be thankful for God and adore Him for that. Instead, she's filled with self-pity and all this remorse and all this stuff inside of her because the idol self is what's ruling her. She hasn't tore that down. And you see, if we don't deal with that now, if we don't tear down the idols, if we don't crucify these sinful things in our life, then when suffering does come to us, we're not going to deal with it right. Because our life won't have right priorities. It won't be in the place of truly loving Jesus like we should. So the seventh key to overcoming grief and sorrow is the crucifying of self. Then in verse 33, and in between 27 and 33, he gives a parable there. I'm not going to take the time to go through it, but it's to set home the aspect of, of what he's teaching about counting the cost. And uh, he uses uh, two parables actually there. But he said in verse 33, in the same way, any of you who does not give up everything he has, he cannot be my disciple. Now, you notice the first thing he said, that we have to love him more than anything, anyone, okay? Any person, including self. Now he comes to anything. Because guess what? We can love people wrongly, 
And we can also love things wrongly. Because these things then can become idols, whether they're philosophies, whether they're possessions, whether it's, it's, it's an occupation, whatever it is, we can have something that is out of whack. And anything that is out of whack, anything that we love more than Christ becomes an idol to us and will one way or, the, or another affect us when we face suffering and grief. So the eighth key to overcoming grief and sorrow is to literally give up everything. And you know, this, I can't tell you how many times commentators and everything else, they try to somehow say that Jesus doesn't mean what He said. It's sad. I mean, these, these men, I mean, some of them were great men that loved God. And, you know, I liked their commentaries and stuff. And I'll, I'll glean through it and chew the meat and spit out the bones. But yet they'll come to some of this stuff. And I, don't, I can't tell you why they try to rewrite it. Probably because one of it is they don't want to live it to such a radical extent. But because it's not going to be a popular message. But I believe Jesus said that we're to give up everything. How does that work? We're going to take absolutely everything and put it in the palm of our hand, and that's everything. Every person, every possession, all of our identity, everything about us, we're to put it in the palm of our hand, and we're to hold it out to Jesus, saying, you can take anything you want, and I will love and adore you. And you can put anything in there that you desire, and I will not lay hold of it and make it an idol. We must take everything and put it at the foot of the cross. Everything. And if you take something from our hand that we don't get angry at Him, we don't say, why would you take that thing? Because what those very words mean is, I do not believe that you are good, that you are doing what's right, because this is what I think is right, and you should have done what I wanted, not what you wanted. Two more examples I want to touch on. The next one is the example of Paul. In 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 1, he said, As God's fellow workers, we urge you not to receive God's grace in vain. We urge you. So that's a very strong word there. We urge you. We compel you. We implore you. So listen to what I'm saying. Listen to what I'm teaching here. Understand what this is. So you're a fellow worker of God. As God's fellow workers, make sure that you aren't receiving the grace of God in vain. What does that mean to receive the grace of God in vain? It means that grace is offered to us, but we do not apply it to our life. It's not that grace isn't offered. It's that grace is offered and not acted upon. How do we become strong in the grace of God? That's what Paul told Timothy. Young pastor, be strong in the grace of God. How do we become strong in grace? Because grace is unmerited favor. There's only one way we become strong in grace. You know what that is? Dependency. Dependency upon Him. Dependency upon the grace to help me through whatever it is. And guess what? I need grace to help me through the good times that can be just as corrupting as the bad times. I need grace to live out this this faith, no matter what it costs me. And so the ninth key to overcoming sorrow is to become strong in the grace of God through surrender, through dependency, that we rely upon Him, that when we come to the end of our own ability, that we realize we can't go any further. We don't have the strength, we don't have the wisdom, we don't have even maybe the desire strong enough that we come and we rely on His grace, say, God, I can only go any further by Your help. Help me, O God. And that may mean we agonize in prayer, crying out for grace more than over the aspect of the grace that we've gone through because that desire should be there to bring glory to His name. And that brings us to the third verse there of chapter 6. 
He said, we put no stumbling block in anyone's path so that our ministry will not be discredited. And I'll tell you what, I wanted to read what was after that, but I just didn't want it to take too much time. And uh, it's phenomenal because he talks about his suffering. He goes through a whole lot of the things that he suffered. And so it is in light of the suffering, he says we do everything so that we don't put a stumbling block before people so that we discredit our ministry, that we do everything. You want to talk about a man that suffered? I guarantee you Paul suffered. He suffered the aspect of persecution and beatings. It says five times he was beaten with a cat of nine tails. Thirty-nine stripes each time. Three times he was beaten with rods. He was shipwrecked. He was stoned to death. All the things he went through, I guarantee you there was suffering in his life. I guarantee you there was the aspect of people that he knew that were martyred for the cause of Christ. Yet he said there's something more important than my own personal grief. That I do not want to put a stumbling block before anyone's path so that our ministry will not be discredited. Let me go back to these two women. The one woman, the first woman, has an unsaved daughter. Her life is out of control. Living in her home, an adult daughter living in her home that is basically a mausoleum to her husband. She has discredited Christ before this girl. She has no ability to speak anything of any authority. How can she say that Jesus is able to save you when she can't demonstrate that Jesus is able to save her from her grief? How can she say that Jesus is the answer when she can't live out the reality that He's the answer in her life situation? So, she has done the exact opposite of what Paul said. She has put a stumbling block in another person's way, and she has discredited the ministry of Christ rather than bringing the reality of who Jesus is to this, to this daughter and showed her how beautiful Jesus is because He can truly help us through our suffering. He can truly help us and make us testimonies in the midst of it. The second woman, she lost that son that got saved, so he died. Well, another wayward son came home. But here she is so wrapped up in her grief that she can't look beyond her own pain, and all this son sees is this mother in absolute agony that won't go to church now. And what has she done? Her own grief has kept this wayward son from returning home. That's serious stuff now, isn't it? Because what happens when we become self-absorbed, when everything is about my pain, my suffering, my struggles then what happens, we take our eyes off of Jesus and the reality of those who are watching us, and now we disgrace Christ before the world because they don't see us doing what Jesus is calling us to do. He's not condemning us for grief. He's not condemning us because we're going through suffering. But if we go from faith to unbelief, now there's a whole different thing. Because now in that place of not loving Him supremely, of not living like we should, of not being what we should be, we are disgracing Christ for those who are watching us. And we're keeping people from the place of salvation because they should be able to read a very good Bible in us. When they look at our lives, they should be able to see the Word of God as much as we're able to live it out. And they should see that we believe in resurrection, that we believe that Jesus truly died for us, rose again, ascended right hand of the Father, and that He is welcoming us home 
when we die. We should demonstrate that with how we live because our life should not be rooted in this world, but it should be rooted in the reality that we are citizens of heaven and not of this world. It should have a whole different manifestation, a whole different thing. And so the ninth key is to be strong in divine grace. The final one. In Isaiah 63, boy, I, I want to share so much more of this chapter as well, but I just had to highlight these points. But in Isaiah, in Isaiah 63, verse 7, I will tell of the kindness of the Lord, the deeds for which He is to be praised according to all the Lord has done for us. Yes, the many good things He has done for the house of Israel according to His compassion and many kindnesses. Now, of course, this is looking back at the at the, the history of Israel. And guess what? Israel has a very checkered past, right? They had 400 years in slavery. Okay? Are they looking... Is, is this here looking back to the pain and anger at God for the pain? Or is this looking at the wonder of how God has revealed Himself in the midst of their sorrow and suffering? You see, it's a matter of what we focus on. It's a matter of what we see. When we are self-absorbed, all we see is our pain. When we are consumed with Christ, when we love Him supremely, then what, 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 what controls our thoughts and, and focuses our eyes is Him and His wonderful face and the wonder of what He's done. And we're just thankful for that He's been here so much through all the midst of a world of such chaos and pain. We are thankful for what He has done. We are thankful for what He will do because what He has done in the past and His kindness that has been manifested in the past, He will manifest it again in whole different ways. I can rely upon a God that does not change. And so the tenth key to overcoming grief and sorrow is a thankful heart. I guarantee you that all three of the women I dealt with, none of them had thankful hearts. None of them. One because she wasn't saved, and the other two because they were self-absorbed. What a sad thing. Sad. And so what did they miss? They missed the reality in the midst of their, their, their suffering of a God that comes and becomes our refuge and wraps His arms around us. And He doesn't always make the suffering disappear right away but He will help us overcome through the midst of it and bring us out the other side stronger. Bring us out on the other side more Christ-like with a greater testimony of who He is and what He wants to do. And so then you have this phenomenal verse, Isaiah 63. I read verse 7. Now here's verse 9. In all their distress, He too was distressed. And the angel of His presence saved them. In His love and mercy, He redeemed them. He lifted them up and carried them all the days of old. What a wonderful, wonderful idea. A knowledge of a God that is distressed with us as we go through our suffering. Father, we come before You now in the precious and wonderful name of Jesus. And Lord, I do not know what people are going through in their own lives right now. And I have no idea what's going to come in the future, but God, I know as being a human in this fallen world that there will be suffering and there will be grief. And Lord, how we handle those times that come to our life, Lord, all depends on who we are in Christ. All depends upon our relationship with You. All depends upon our love for You and our faith in You. It depends upon how our eyes are going to either be fixed upon you or upon ourselves. 
God, I'm asking for a maturing in Your people because the preparing for the times of suffering that will come happens right now. And Lord, we don't wish that suffering comes upon any people. We don't want it upon ourselves. It's not fun. It has never been fun. It was never meant to be fun. But yet, Lord, You can be there in the midst of it and You can turn our agony, our misery, our hurts, our pains, our trials and temptations. You can bring it. You can, you can change it to something that is, is good and wonderful. And we can look back at it and, and say, boy, that was a terrible time, but it was a good time, Jesus, because You were so near. You were so close. You were so wonderful. You delivered so mightily. And Lord, I believe You all the more because of what I have seen in the midst of my suffering and how You are a conqueror to those who will let You be victor. And so, Lord, I'm asking for anybody that's here that is not right with You or just they are not where they should be and they know that the aspect of suffering is going to just immobilize them. It may be immobilizing them right now. And Lord, I'm asking that they would lay aside pride and and fear and be willing to deal with it at this altar, dear God. That they would be willing to look at the the, the, the tremendous need that's inside of them instead of trying to raise some, some facade of pride, that they would tear it down and allow that vulnerability to you that you might be able to come and truly start making them strong that they could overcome. Paul said he wanted to know you and the power of your resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in your sufferings. He wanted to know you And he also wanted to know the power of your resurrection, this absolute victory that you have. There was no defeat. You were not defeated at Calvary. Hell did not win at Calvary. Through the cross and through your resurrection, you have defeated hell, you've defeated death, you've defeated the grave, and all those who follow you will have that same victory because you freely give it to those who belong to you. And so, God, any that are suffering right now and in a place of defeat, Lord, You want them to know the victory that You offer. And God, may they come and run to You just crying for the victory that You so much want to give. And if there's anybody here that is not a true follower of Jesus or a backslider, would You bring them home? Would You bring them home, Jesus? In Your precious name. Thank You, Jesus.